The following is a message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. More information about Parkview is available at www.parkviewchurch.org. Well, good morning. This is what people would normally refer to as Christmas Sunday, because it's a Sunday right before Christmas, and I'm thrilled that you're here, looking forward to uh, Christmas Eve, I, and I think it's going to be a candle lighting service, too, so make sure your kids wear something appropriate. Uh, we don't want them to catch on fire as we pass the candles, but it should be a lot of fun. It really should be a, a great service, and it would be a, a wonderful opportunity to bring somebody uh, who doesn't know uh, the Savior. You know, when, whenever we get to this time of the, of the year, I get these Christmas cards, and I wonder as I read the Christmas cards, how in the world could Christmas be so misunderstood? On the one hand, you have uh, Santa Claus saying, ho, ho, ho. On the other hand, you see another card that says, you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. That's out of Isaiah, the, the passage that we're, that we're in, the book that we're in now looking at Isaiah. On the other hand, you might get one with um, uh, the heavenly host saying, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And then the next thing you know, you turn around and, and the whole world is in mass hysteria to see the new Star Wars uh, movie. I mean, on one, the opening night, $120.5 million, by far the biggest opening of, of any um, movie. And I didn't know this, I just found this out, that there's actually, it started out as a spoof, Jediism, a religion called Jediism. Now it's the real thing. There are more members of Jediism around the world than there are, well, no, it's, it's almost, it, it will be in another month if, if the trend continues, than the entire Evangelical Free Church of America. Can you imagine that? Quarter of a million quarter of a million. And Evangelical Free Church of America is just a hair over a quarter of a million. Jediism. You wonder, what is going on? How can Christmas be so misunderstood? Do you think of the first Christmas? It was a very poor Christmas. And now it's, it's absolutely a dazzling display of, of wealth. Do you think of the amount of money that's spent uh, today? Here are a few stats. On the one hand, the average, the average Adult, American adult, will spend $781 on Christmas gifts, over half online, $7.2 billion in America just on Christmas decorations, $600 billion uh, spent on Christmas gifts. The first Christmas, the wise men came in to worship Jesus, and um, the whole thing has just been turned upside down and Santa has taken over Jesus and he's taken away everything of meaning and value and left presence in return. How could it, how could Christmas get so messed up? And I, I think whenever we take our eyes off of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, things do get flipped upside down. That's one of the beauties of the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah takes all of Jesus, uh, first advent, second advent, character, work, and puts it all together in one book. I, I know a number of you are in BSF and a number of you are going through the book of Revelation. You'll never understand Revelation until you understand Isaiah. You'll never understand Isaiah until you understand the book of Revelation. So hopefully today what I'm going to do is sort of pull those two together to give you a picture of the one who was born 
on Christmas morning as a babe in a manger. That first Advent, the first Christmas, uh, Jesus came veiled in all humility. But in the second Advent, especially if you're reading the book of Revelation, you see it, we see this in Isaiah as well. He comes unveiled in all of his glory. And the first advent, a star marks his arrival. Second time he comes, the heavens will roll up like a scroll. The, the stars will plummet out of the sky. And his own brilliance is going to totally illuminate all of the heavens. This is the one we worship. At, this is the one we worship every Sunday and hopefully every day of our lives. The wise men brought him gifts at the first Christmas. But the second Christmas, he will bring rewards with him. That first advent was one of total poverty. The second one will be all the riches of glory. I am absolutely convinced the world would change if he could get a picture of the Jesus we're going to talk about this morning. If people really bought the Jesus of Isaiah, their lives would not ever be the same. Again, because Isaiah weaves these two together in a beautiful package, first, second advent. And I'll talk about that and the way he does it and why it comes out the way it comes out. So we're going to look at Isaiah 11 and 12. We're going to pull in some other chapters out of Isaiah. Isaiah 53, we're going to look at some others. Uh, we're going to pull in uh, some of the Gospels. We'll also pull in some of Revelation because you can't understand Isaiah without understanding uh, Revelation. So let me define the first advent. I've sort of belabored the wording so you can understand it uh, a little more fully and completely. The first advent, Jesus Christ came veiled as a child, lived as a loving, humble servant leader without sin, and died sacrificially to satisfy the justice of God and to save us from our own sin. So let's look, first of all, at the very person of Christ. What we find out in the epistles is that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born, and Isaiah talked about this, born of a woman, a virgin, born under the law, and here's the purpose. This first advent was to redeem, to buy back, to redeem those under the law so that another purpose clause, so that we might be received as adoption, as sons. In other words, first advent, Jesus came because we have an incredible need to redeem so that we can be adopted. That whole relationship with the sovereign God can be restored. That's the purpose. Isaiah 11 puts it this way, begins to describe it. First advent. There shall come forth a shoot. Uh, and I'm going to give you the Hebrew word because it's going to make sense. There's going to come form a natzar, a shoot, from the stump of Jesse. In other words, there's going to be a little shoot that's going to come out of the stump of Jesse. Jesse was the father of, anybody know? David. Now, what's important, when you look at Isaiah and, and Revelation, you're gonna, we're going to find out that Jesus ascends to the rightful throne of David, the Davidic throne. That's why all the genealogies throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, I know they're boring when you read them, but they're all there to show that Jesus has the legal and genetic right to the throne of David. Okay, they're all there for that purpose. 
So this shoot, this Nazar, is going to come out of the stump, Jesse, to David. <clears throat> and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. When we get to Isaiah 53, it's explained a little more. That this shoot, this Nazar, is going to actually come from Nazareth, Nazareth. Jesus of what? Nazareth. This was talked about centuries before that he would be called the Nazarene. So in this first uh, Christmas, what have we found out so far? We have found out <clears throat> this one born in a major is God's son. He's God's son, but at the same time, he comes out of the stump of Jesse, going to be born of a woman, of a virgin. So that, that juxtaposition doesn't make a whole lot of sense to our brains. Heaven, but a virgin from David, the line of David. Hmm. And then he goes on to say he's going to come from heaven, but at the same time from Nazareth. He's going to come to redeem, to buy back, but at the same time, he's going to rule. He's going to die, but he's going to rule how do those go together? Well, in the first Christmas that we're talking about now, normally that we celebrate, the first Christmas, Jesus certainly didn't look like a king. Isaiah 53 says that he was rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. And we, est we esteemed him not. How, how could he rule? People don't even esteem him. They don't like the way he looks. They don't like the way he acts. How could he rule? First advent, he didn't even act like a king. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of, of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself. Do these sound like words of a king? By becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross? Well, his first advent, he sure didn't look like a king. He sure didn't act like a king. His message, his values were not the message or values of a king as well. I mean, he said things like, don't worry about what to eat or drink or wear. Seek first his righteousness. He said, deny yourself. Message of a king? Deny yourself? Take up your cross and follow me? The last will be first? <laughs> no, no, Jesus, you got that backwards. First will be last. No, 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 no. It's not the way it works. He certainly wasn't treated as a king. People wanted him dead. No wonder Christmas is not what it really should be. And I'll tell you why. It's because, bottom line, Christmas diverts from the way it was intended because people reject the life of and the values of the very one who is Christmas. They reject his person, and they reject his work. So not only do they reject the person, let's look at the work, the work of Christ in both his life and death. Go back to Isaiah 11. This is where we are today. A really important passage that talks about who we are as believers filled with the Holy Spirit, who Jesus was, and it reflects all the way back to Moses, okay? It's called the seven spirits of God. 
And uh, let's see, you see the menorah right here? The seven candlesticks, that's the menorah. Uh, the menorah is used to symbolize these very seven spirits of God. Let me read it. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, central stick. And then we have three pairs of words. Wisdom, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The, that's who this Savior is. It was a picture of Moses. Uh, it was established in the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies, this candelabra of seven candlesticks with the seven spirits of God. Uh, it was then transported into the first temple, into the second temple, and then was carried away or destroyed uh, 70 AD when Rome, when Rome came in and destroyed uh, Jerusalem. At that point, now most of you know when you look at a menorah, it's, it's nine candlesticks. And the reason it's, it's no longer seven, it's nine, because the Talmud then said, now that it was destroyed, uh, we don't want it reproduced as seven candlesticks anymore. It has to be something different than the seven. Okay, so that's the reason you don't see, in most Jewish homes today, they don't celebrate the menorah the way it was intended to in Exodus 25. They celebrate it more in terms of, of a historical deliverance uh, later, which they call Hanukkah. Okay, not that it's inappropriate at all. It's just not the original intent of the menorah. So it was made of solid, absolute solid gold, uh, so it was a talent, so about 110 pounds of solid gold. I mean, 110 pounds of solid gold, folks, that's 1,760 ounces. And I looked it up with Cal California Numismatic Close of Friday. If you were to take the uh, American Gold Eagle, pound it out into a candelabra, it would be worth about at $1,124.30 an ounce. Uh, the candelabra today would be worth $1,978,768 if you were to buy that online today. Uh, this is a replica. You can get that at Walmart for $10, okay? So, um, but let me just tell you what, I, want to, I don't want you to miss the meaning of it. It's pointing at who the Savior is going to be, who Jesus is going to be. And that's why when Jesus was resurrected and he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, okay? The seven, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And you just see the same thing as fruits and gifts of the Spirit in our lives. Okay, these are all true in our lives as believers now. Wisdom, hakma, which would be skill, skill in living life. Ethical wisdom, the ability to choose wisely. Another one would be understanding, bina, judgment, discernment, uh, counsel, etzah, advice or purpose, the ability to form plans, uh, might, geburah, uh, valor, strength, effectiveness, power, victory, knowledge, uh, perception, intelligence, fear, reverence, piety, uh, uh, respect, all these. You look at it throughout. I was, I, was, I was thinking I should illustrate that in Jesus' life throughout. And I thought, no, you can do that. Do that. This would be a great study for a community group. You go through those seven spirits and show how the Holy Spirit wants to, to display all of those in your lives. You know, think of the dunamis, the power of the Holy Spirit when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. All those are we find in Christ. So that's the life. The death, we also see it in the death of Christ. And that's the significance, goes way beyond the life of Christ. 
Uh, it says, surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, and we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. See, the world thought that Christ was being punished because of what he did. But the truth is, he was being punished because he was bearing my griefs, bearing my sorrows. I love in Isaiah 53, verse 5, and I'm going to personalize it, and you just follow along in your mind with me. But he was pierced for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought me peace, and with his wounds I am healed. (coughs) And I'm going, I'm healed? What am I healed from? Well, he tells us exactly. We're, we're all like sheep. We've gone astray. We've all turned our, our own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's why he came the first time. Redemption to buy back. Okay? <clears throat> That's Matthew chapter 1. She, Mary, is going to bear a son. And you shall name him Jesus, remember the Lord is salvation, same name as Isaiah, same name as Joshua, same thing. You're going to name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. That's what Christmas, that's the whole first advent that it's about. Romans 5, uh, God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died in our place to restore that adoption, that right relationship with the Savior. Christmas is God taking my griefs, my sorrows, my sin, and laying it on him. So Isaiah 53, just some selected words out of, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was a lamb going to the slaughter. Behold, the lamb of the world. You you see these parallels constantly through the gospels. Like sheep that's led before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. But he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, yet he bore the sin of many. Don't let Christmas go by being misunderstood. I think so many times we look at the tree and all we think of are presents. You know, maybe we give a thought toward Jesus. But I'll tell you, the next time you look at that Christmas tree, you know, instead of thinking, Jesus, boy, thank you, Jesus, that you died for me, also think, I should be the one on that tree. I should be the one dying. And yet Jesus came as the Redeemer to die in my place. Well, if that's the first advent, what's the second advent? The second advent is Jesus Christ is going to come again, unveiled in all of his glory, to reign as sovereign Lord and King. Now, the amazing thing about Isaiah chapter 11, and we've, Doug and I have talked about this a little bit through the book of Isaiah. He flip-flops back and forth from first advent to second advent. You see his birth, you see him reigning, you see death. You know, and it's a little confusing. I, I just want to give you a little clarity here. I just want to give you some of my thoughts on how this happens. Because you get to chapter 11, you get to the middle of verse 4. I'm talking in the middle of verse 4, and all of a sudden Isaiah, it's a technical term, wormholes. He wormholes from 
first advent to second advent. And all of a sudden, he's talking about the second, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and his breath of his lips, he'll kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf, and the lion, and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. He goes, whoa, what, what has happened? We've gone from first Christmas to second Christmas in the middle of one verse. Can I explain it the best way I see it? Okay, I, I'm going to just try. So, I mean, you know, doo -dee -doo -dee 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 -dee. we're now entering the twilight zone. You know, I haven't really read this. I'm not saying other people haven't written on it. This is just my best guess of what's happening. My best guess of what's happening is this. Back in Isaiah 6, you know, Doug taught Isaiah 6. Where was I, Isaiah transported to? You remember? The what room of God? The throne room of God. Now, does God exist? Is he limited by time or not? He exists before time, after time. He's not limited by time. Is he limited by speed? I mean, is there, is there a speed limit on God? No, of course, of course not. So what happens when, there, when you escape from the realm of time, everything warps. You know, we, we, where we live, we are so consumed with chronology. That's why the Gospels aren't in order, and it frustrates us, and we have maps, and we have charts, and I've got them, and I love them, because I want things in terms of chronology. But when you get beyond time, when you get into the throne room of God, outside of the time-space dimension, everything changes. So when I say, when I just use the word wormhole, again, I haven't read that any theologian has used it. I mean, like the universe turns in on itself. So if chron chronologically you have a, something that happens here and then something that happens here and then things bend, the universe bends, all of a sudden these two events, instead of being here and here, are right next to each other. That's verse 14, verse 4. They're right next to each other. They're within spitting distance of each other. It's not that Isaiah was stupid, and it's not that God couldn't communicate to Isaiah. Now, Isaiah, first this is going to happen, and then this, and then, then that. It's just that it didn't matter. So I'm thinking about all this. I'm going, oh, I just wonder. I mean, look, look at Einstein. I mean, if it didn't puzzle Einstein, you think it freaked God out? Well, what, happens if you, what happens if you go faster than the speed of light? What happens to time when you go faster than the speed of light? You start to go backwards in time. There once was a lady named Bright. Her speed was much faster than light. She took off one day in her normal way and returned home the previous night. See, the whole dimension of time gets warped. That's Isaiah. Isaiah was in the throne room of God. The time-space dimension is very different now. So he goes from first advent to second advent, first advent to second advent, all together. Folks, I hope this is beginning to make sense because this last week, my mind is all of a sudden getting blown away because I'm looking at passages like, like in the Psalter. I'm looking at Psalm 139 where, where oh, I think I have it. 
David is saying, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, yet none of them have taken place yet. How could that be true? That God sees every day of our life and we're not even born. He's not limited by time. It's the same reason Isaiah would say, yet even before you ask, I've already answered your prayer. So anyway, take that. Let's exit the time zone, the twilight zone, and get back to uh, Revelation 19. Because I think Revelation 19, as Isaiah pulls these two together, Revelation gives us a, a wonderful picture of how they all fit. So let's look again at that comparison and contrast of first and second advent. First advent, Jesus comes. There's no room for him in the end. Second advent, the world can't even contain his glory. First advent, he's quietly born in a manger. Second advent, he bursts through heaven's doors. He plummets out of the sky. He lands. He splits the earth open. The first advent, though, the world doesn't even notice. The second, though, a trumpet will herald to the world that he has come. He will light up the sky with his glory. And the Bible says that every eye will see him. So in Revelation, John says, I saw the heaven open and behold the white horse, the one sitting on it, faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. And so Jesus comes and he reclaims the title to the earth and he establishes his sovereign reign and control. You see, that which happens, the second advent, is the answer to Isaiah's prayer. Listen to Isaiah's prayer in six, chapter 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. So the first advent, he was a, a Nazar. He was a tender shoot out of a stump with no majesty. No beauty, a shoot out of a stump. The second advent is total majestic, regal, glorious. First advent, he, he rides into Nazareth on the donkey, you know, in the womb of Mary. He later goes into Jerusalem, again on a donkey. Second, he bursts out of heaven on a white stallion, victorious victorious over sin, victorious over Satan, victorious over the false prophet, victorious over hell, victorious over the world system. The first advent, he was called a liar. He was called a, a false prophet. He was called a devil. But when he comes again, he will only be called faithful and true. The first advent, he was meek and lowly. But the second advent, he will come and he will come conquering. Those who are found in him will enter into, their, into his kingdom and ultimately into eternity with him. The, the, not unusual, not scary in the wrong way, but scary in the right way. Uh, sobering would be a good word. The sobering fact is every single person will be at a marriage, at a feast with God will either be, chapter 19, verse 9 of Revelation, uh, involved in the marriage supper of the Lamb, the marriage feast of the Lamb, or 
we will be involved in the great supper of God. That would not be pleasant. Uh, verse 17. Because anyone's name not found written in the book of life, he will throw into the lake of fire. You see, Christmas, I, I think Christmas is not what it should be today. Because people really don't want this Jesus. I'll tell you what they want. They want, they want to take one step. I want the redemption part. I want to peer over the rail of the manger and look at that little baby and woo, coochie, coochie, coo, and he cute. But they don't want to see him coming back as a reigning, conquering king. It says in verse 12 of Revelation 19, his eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head are diadems he has and he has written a name that no one knows but himself. Gosh, you know, when you, when you think of the first advent, Jesus' eyes absolutely sparkled with love, with tenderness. He gathered children to himself. He held lepers in his arms. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. His eyes were filled with tears as he wept with those that loved him. And as his eyes wept for those that rejected him. But there will be a day when he comes and his eyes will be a flaming fire and he will see into the darkest, most closed recess of every heart. We will not be able to hide anything. His eyes will probe the depths of any facade he will melt away any mask. I think if we were to really see Jesus in the fullness of who he really is, it would make a radical difference how we live and what we live for. He's Revelation 19.13 says he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. This is one of the most powerful images to me that impacts personally me so greatly. And I think of the, the first coming when Jesus came. He came in the manger and he was dressed in what kind of clothes? Swaddling clothes. Those are death clothes. He was dressed in swaddling clothes. Why? Because his first advent, he, was, he came to redeem. Okay, He came to redeem, to pay a price, to redeem, so that we could be adopted. But then when he comes again, he comes back in garments that are very different. On a white war charger with white garments. But it says in this verse that those garments are actually dipped in blood. The blood not only of those that he has defeated, Satan, the false prophet, hell itself. But it's also splattered with his own blood. And what gets me, when I think, when I think of him returning, his garment shouldn't be splattered with his own blood. His garment should have been splattered with my blood. That's whose blood should have been on it. 
And it just makes me think personally. Um, every single battle that I in faith allow him to fight, he conquers. But every battle that I try and do it my way, according to my timing, with my logic, with my ability, with my skills, with my resources, it ends up getting splattered with blood. I bear my own wounds when I fight my own battles. No wonder Christmas is so misunderstood. The first advent, he came by himself. The next advent, he will return with his own. The first advent, his own actually rejected him. But the second advent, when he returns, he will return with those who have trusted him. It says, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we think, how in the world are we going to fight all the battles that we face every day? Battles with our mates, our husbands, our wives. Battles with our children. Battle with the world and its system. Battle with disease. How do we fight all these battles? The fact is, we find in this passage, we don't. He's the one who has to fight it. He speaks, and it is done. It's done. Our defense is Jesus. Our victory is Jesus. He speaks and it is done. The first time he came in all humility, the next time he will come in power. The first time he came to redeem, to die to save people from their sin. The next time he comes, he comes to sovereignly reign. The first time he came, he was unjustly mocked, unjustly accused, unjustly judged, the next time he comes, he will be the perfect and righteous judge. First time he came, people trampled underfoot the Son of God, hated his love, spurned his grace. But the next time he comes, the Bible says, every single knee will bow. Every single tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, the King of of kings and the Lord of lords. You see, it's not enough for Jesus Christ to be born 2,000 years ago. If Christmas is to be real for us, it's not enough for Jesus to die on a cross some 33 years after. And it's really not even enough for Jesus to come again at the second Christmas, the second Advent, if Christmas really is going to be different for you this year, then Jesus must be born again in your heart. That's the only way it will really be different, to let him reign in your life. So what should my response be to this Savior? Well, let me give you the words out of Isaiah chapter 12. We looked at 11, Isaiah 12. Here are the words, and it sort of summarizes the entire gospel. 
Behold, God is my salvation. That's the redemption, the buyback, the first advent. God is my salvation. Therefore, I will trust and I will not be afraid. He reigns. For the Lord God is my strength. You're beginning to see these, the elements of the Spirit of God. He's my strength and he's my song. And he's become my salvation. So with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Might, strength, song. John, before he penned Revelation, he earlier wrote this. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Isaiah 26 says this. Many of you, Revelation, going back to Revelation, again, the, the similarities between the two are o- almost overpowering. Revelation 3.20. Many of you know Revelation 3.20. If you've been in Crew or Campus Crusade for Christ, it's one of the first verses I ever learned. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He who opens the door, I'll come in and sup with him and he with me. You know where that comes from? Isaiah, of course. <laughs> Isaiah, it's spoken to the nation, but it goes like this. Instead of open the, open the door, it's open the gates. Isaiah 26, open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Would you consider receiving the greatest gift you could ever receive? Not that Being a baby in a manger is a bad thing. It's a a wonderful beginning, but it's not the end. Lived a perfect life. He died on a cross for us. He bore my iniquities, my sin. And then the result of that, if I put my faith and trust in him, I don't need to be afraid. He's going to be my strength. He's going to be my song. He's going to be my stability. He's going to be my peace. Through whatever this earth, this world, until Jesus comes again, can dish out at me. That's what Christmas means. Well, let's all stand up and we'll close with a word of prayer. Oh God, uh, wow, deep, powerful passage that you penned through your prophet Isaiah through your Apostle John. And oh God, we've just taken a glimpse at the profound depth of your word. And oh Lord, I just pray that every single person in here will have run to Jesus, the Savior, would have appropriated his forgiveness and the redemption price paid on their behalf. If you're here and you have not yet taken that step, I just, I beg you to trust in this everlasting rock, to trust in him forever. 
if you open the door or if you open the gate, we'll come in and sup with you and enter into that eternal relationship with God the Father. So Lord, thank you. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for the opportunity to begin this intense reflection on the person, the work of Jesus Christ, his work of redemption, his work of reigning. And so Jesus, we pray now that you would have free reign in our lives as believers in Jesus Christ. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Parkview's mission is to love God, love others, and serve the world. If you live in the Iowa City area, we invite you to join us in person for services every weekend. You can get service times and directions, download messages, and get news and information about Parkview Church by visiting www.parkviewchurch.org. You can also contact us by phone at 319-354-5580 or write to us at Parkview Church, 15 Foster Road, Iowa City, Iowa, 52245.